Well, it is really good to be here with you guys this morning. Great to see you. Um, thrilled you all could join us. We are going to continue our series in the book of Ruth. This is part five. Just as a, as a quick reminder, so far, um, we have covered four different things in this series. The series is titled Hold Fast. And we're, we're looking at different things that God calls us to hold on to. And so the first week we met, we talked about how God was calling us to hold fast to him. He's our king. And let's hold fast to him as our king. And that our true identity is found when we're holding on to him. We find ourselves in him. Uh, week two, we talked about the importance of godly friendships and the power in holding fast to one another, hanging in there with each other, clinging to God's people. Then the last two weeks, we talked about some particular things the Lord does in our life, things that we're really just on the receiving end of. He does them and we grab hold of them. And so the first was grace. We hold fast to God's grace and it shows up by his presence in our lives or his providence. It shows up by him protecting us and grace shows up when God provides for us. And so those are some of the things we explored. And then last week, we talked about resting in him. And there, there is a part that we play in rest. We have, to, we have to go to him and seek it, grab a hold of it, hold on to him. We let him do the work on our behalf, but we rest in that work. We take hold of it. And so we talked about how we do that last week. So this morning, um, we're going to talk about holding fast to God's promise. And so I want to start where we left off last week, looking at the last few verses of chapter three. Um, our primary passage this morning is actually going to be found in Ruth chapter four. But let me, let me read where we ended last week, and I'm going to pray one more time, and then we'll jump into this. Here we go. Ruth chapter three, verses 16 through 18. After Ruth has sought out Boaz, she's asked him to cover over her. Um, he has told her he's going to take care of her. And then he sends a message back with Ruth to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And so verse 16, when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told Naomi all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And Naomi replied, wait, my daughter. Can you guys say, wait, my daughter? until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Today. That's Ruth's only appearance this morning. Wait, my daughter, while the man gets to work. Let's pray. Jesus, my prayer this morning is simply this. God, that we could see you. Jesus, may we see you, our Redeemer, God, we don't want to walk out of here with three little points that we can apply to our life and be that much better of a Christian. Jesus, we need you. We need our Redeemer. And so, Lord, would you help us through this story, through your word, may the reality of who you are in our lives come to life. Jesus, if, if, if there's something new that you want us to see this morning, I pray we see it. God, if you want to remind us of your redemptive work in our life, would you do that? We give you our heart, our attention. God, would you come and speak? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
this is not a typical message. This is not a typical, here's the three points, go do this kind of message. It's really um, a picture. It's a story. And we're going to look at a couple of different passages in the scripture that I hope will highlight this story. But I, I really just want to say to you, um, my hope is just what I prayed, that we would have a picture of Jesus, our Redeemer, this morning. And so I would just encourage you, um, ask the Lord yourself in your heart to just help you see him this morning, something about him that he may want to show you or reveal to you. Invite him to do that in your heart. It's interesting to me that when Boaz gets to work, as we're about to see, Ruth drifts into the background. And, and the hero of the story rolls up his sleeves and he gets the job done on her behalf. And our role this morning is the role of Ruth. So what we're getting is an inside glimpse of something she didn't see. We're getting an inside glimpse of the Redeemer going to work to redeem the one he loves. And our, our really only action step this morning is going to be the very last thing that we look at. We're going to look at one verse at the very end. And up until that point, it's about getting a picture of Jesus. You guys with me? You ready for that? Okay, so we're going to start by reading the passage. It's about 10 verses. So hang with me. You can turn there in your Bible if you want to follow along. Ruth chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1. It will be up on the screen as well. And let's just get a picture of this story as Boaz sets out to redeem Ruth and Naomi, whatever that means. Here we go. Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, this is another person, of whom Boaz had spoken came by. In the previous chapter, Boaz had mentioned that while he wanted to redeem Ruth, there was a closer relative, a more near Redeemer. And we're, we're going to unpack that a bit more this morning. And so Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And Boaz took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. Then Boaz said to the Redeemer, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab and is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the man said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself. Sorry, I lost my place. There it is. For I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal, the one that was giving up his right, drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. I'm not sure if any of you guys, when you closed on a house that you purchased, if you just traded shoes. Um, but that was their form of a contract. That'd be a lot faster. 
grosser, but faster. Um, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon, if you remember those guys, sickly and wasting away, are those awesome guys that Naomi's Naomi's, uh, sons. Verse 10, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Okay, we need a little understanding of what we're reading here. So um, Naomi has been left without an heir. Her husband has died, her sons have died. Naomi is the one that actually has property here in Israel, and she has no way for her husband's name to continue on. She not only has that problem, she has the issue of nobody to really do anything with the land. Nobody can can run the land and produce something with it. And so she is stuck. And there was an allowance made, and we're going to read about it in just a minute, where it was the responsibility of a near relative to come along and oversee, protect that family line. And so they would come and they would marry the widow. They would get the property, purchase the property. And then their job was to provide a male heir for the husband, the man who had died. So his name could continue. Y'all tracking with me so far? So Boaz, in this story, he's got eyes for Ruth. I mean, he's fallen in love with this gal. He's got eyes for her. He wants her. She's the prize in his mind. He's got a problem. There's someone else that has a right to Naomi's land and therefore as well to Ruth, who's lost her husband. Um, Naomi was too old for this to pass to her and so her daughter-in-law. So what's he gonna do? So he approaches the guy and he has a conversation with him. And when when we first see this unfolding, I mean, if you've been following this story and you're cheering for Ruth and Boaz to get together, you're kind of bummed out because the guy says, I'll do it, right? He begins by saying, yeah, I'll take the land. You got it. So the near redeemer wanted the land, but then when Boaz brings up Ruth, he rejects it. He rejects it. He says, no, I'm not interested now. Why? Why was this guy unwilling to take Ruth as a part of this? Let's look at this a little bit more closely here. Verse five, Ruth chapter four, verse five. Boaz reminds him or says to him, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite. She's a Gentile. She's not Jewish. This ain't a Jewish gal. The widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. There are two reasons this near kinsman does not want to do this. Number one, he doesn't want to marry a Gentile. He wants to keep his inheritance, his bloodline clean, pure. He doesn't want to marry a Gentile. But secondly, this issue of inheritance, he doesn't want to pass on his stuff to someone else's namesake. So he doesn't want to marry the Gentile and he doesn't want to pass on his inheritance. So in other words, he would have to spend money to purchase this property. But then one day that property is going back in Naomi's family name. 
So he's spending money and then giving it away. And he says, I can't afford it. So this is, this is what's happening. So this guy now, he's, he's in a panic. This went from good news, hey, I can acquire some new property at a pretty good deal, to bad news. I'm going to be throwing this money away. And so he says back, we'll read this one more time, the Redeemer says back to Boaz, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Now, we might be hearing just a cold-hearted guy, if we're not careful. A guy that's just like, I don't want her, forget her. No, he's worried. He's concerned. He's supposed to fulfill this role. And now he's nervous. He's going, I can't do this. I can't afford this. I can't impair my own inheritance. He's, he's now pleading with Boaz. Would you take my right of redemption yourself for I cannot redeem it. Would you please do this for me? And then they walk us through the custom again, right? So he draws off the sandal and he offers it to Boaz. He says, please, will you take this responsibility? I'm giving up my right. And so the redeemer says to Boaz, please buy it for yourself. When he's offering that sandal, he's pleading with him. He's pleading with him. And he's so pleading with him that he's willing to give up his right to that land. That sandal, one of the reasons they exchanged them, it was a picture that you now have the right to walk on that land. It's yours. You would not be trespassing now. You would own it. And so here's your right to walk across this land. It belongs to you. But that sandal symbolizes something else. And we can't fully appreciate the desperate situation this guy is in without understanding the law that is behind this whole transaction. So let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 25. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, God makes this allowance when, when tragedy takes place, when there's a widow in the land and there's property to take care of her and there's a need for an heir, God has made this allowance and it's called the Leverite marriage or Leverite marriage. That has nothing to do with Levi or priests. This is just the name of it. It literally means like marrying your brother-in-law's wife. It's just this picture of you taking care of family. That's the picture, all right? So check this out. Deuteronomy chapter 25. Watch what's supposed to take place and what happens if, if the Redeemer refuses to do the job. Deuteronomy 25, verse five. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Check this out. And the first son whom she bears shall, shall succeed the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. Whoa. That escalated quickly. <laughs> and she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. 
And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. <laughs> How would you like that to be your legacy? It's going to be known all over Israel. That's the brother that had his sandal pulled off. And uh, I know because I watched your spit in his face. The elders gather around and watch this take place. Listen, this is what we call a lose-lose situation. This near redeemer, this near kinsman that's supposed to do the job, on one hand, he's saying, I can't do it. I don't have what it takes. I don't have the finances. I don't have the resources. I don't feel like I can sully my family line with a Gentile. I, I can't afford to purchase this land and then later give it away. Like, I can't do this. And yet, here I am in front of God and everyone. All the elders are gathered around. And what I deserve by turning this down is shame. And I deserve for my shame to be known to everyone in this community and all of Israel. There's the bro who had the sandal pulled off his foot and Naomi spit in his face. There is something really interesting going on here. Have you guys heard before where the scripture talks about Jesus being our mediator? Our mediator? Boaz is operating as a mediator here. He actually is operating on Naomi's behalf in this conversation, in this exchange. But what's so cool about Boaz is he's also taking care of the near kinsman. He's taking care of his issue as well. He's watching out for both sides in this party. Check this out. Think about the players that are involved here, okay? First of all, we have Naomi. Why is Naomi in this situation? She ran away. She has run away. She gave up her land when she ran away. She leaves and then she loses everything. She loses her husband. She loses her sons. She's come back ashamed. She needs covered and redeemed because she's blown it. And so he's covering her. But Boaz also covers this near kinsman who deserves to be shamed, who deserves to have his face spit in. But Boaz says, no, I got you, bro. I can afford it. I'll take it. Remember how we started this? Boaz was a mighty man of wealth. He had influence. He had power. He had wealth. He said, I've got it covered. I can afford this property. In fact, I can afford to perpetuate the name of the dead. I'm willing to purchase it and then leave an inheritance for this child. Pretty cool. Boaz is an awesome guy. So he's covering Naomi. He's covering the near kinsmen. And then think about this. Boaz is covering Ruth. She's the unwanted Gentile bride. Why is Boaz willing to do that when this other guy isn't? I mean, we could just settle with he's a great guy or he had eyes for Ruth. And man, I think all those things apply. But there's something interesting about Boaz that we could miss if we don't pay attention. Told you guys week one or week two, I, I believe every single detail in the Bible is there for a reason. And I believe that those details point to Jesus Christ. It's all about him. He's the word made flesh. So let's dig into Boaz history a little bit. Well, if you were to look down at verse 21, it's right in the middle of this genealogy that begins to explain uh, Boaz's family line and then what came after him, after him and Ruth get married. And right in the middle of it, it tells us the name of his father, Salmon, Salmon, however you want to pronounce it, was his father. Okay, well, that seems harmless enough. Well, if we do a little more digging... And we look ahead to this passage that 
kind of always annoyed me when I was a kid at the beginning of the Gospels where it's just this long list of so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. Why is that there? Well, let me show you one of the reasons. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, in the midst of the lineage of Jesus Christ, we come across this part. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by... Boaz is half Gentile. Boaz's mother is a Gentile who could have been killed, who could have been rejected, but she was rescued through the fall of Jericho. That was her story. Remember, she let the two spies come and have a place to stay. And because she covered them and she protected them, Rahab now then gets rescued out of Jericho and marries this guy, Salmon, a Jew, and they have a son named Boaz, who's now our hero of this story. When he sees Ruth, his heart goes out to her because she is one of him. He gets it. He relates. He understands. Somehow this guy, a half-breed, has moved up to a place where he is elevated and considered this mighty, honorable, respected man. That's where we started. This town thinks highly of Boaz. And so this guy that has, has gone from who knows what rejection and stuff he might have experienced as a kid, you know, people elbowing, oh yeah, he's only half Jewish. Like racism isn't a new thing. He was awkward. He would have stood out. He would have been ridiculed probably as a kid. Now this guy has risen to this place of influence and power and he looks at Ruth and he goes, I get it. I understand. And I want to redeem your life. And so he brings on this Gentile bride. Okay, so we have this contract that's starting to come into shape, all right? We've got a guy who's, who had the rights to this property and this land. There's this exchange of this sandal between him and Boaz. And Boaz, because of this covenant, is now going to purchase the land and he's going to take Ruth as his bride. To understand the full significance of a covenant contract, I want to take you guys to one of the most significant ones in all of the Old Testament. Because this issue of a sandal, the issue of our feet and where we walk is meaningful. So Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, we've already had about three chapters uh, covering a relationship that has begun between the God of heaven and a guy named Abram, who will later become Father Abraham. And God has made some promises to Abram. And Abram is a few years into this journey now and still not seeing any results. This is a guy who has no kids. He's getting older, but God's promised him he's going to have as many children as the, num as the stars in the sky. And he's promised him a land that he's going to show him. And Abram's sitting here going, we're a few years into this, Lord. I'm not seeing either of these yet. I see no land. I see no children. What's up? And God reaffirms a covenant or a commitment with Abraham. And so I want you to see a few things here. I would encourage you to go back and read all of chapter 15. It's fascinating. But a couple things I want you to see. First of all, Abraham trusted God. Genesis 15, verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. 
without yet seeing the promise fulfilled, Abraham believes God and takes him at his word. And then God says, to show you that I'm going to keep this promise, that I'm going to keep this covenant and provide for you a land and a name, heirs to continue on forever, we're going to walk out a covenant together. And they did this very strange Jewish thing. Let's check this out. Skipping down to verse 8. But Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, you just need to be careful the questions that you ask God. What he's saying is, God, I'm looking for some evidence here, some proof, like where's your sandal? Where, where's the evidence that you're going to fulfill this promise? And God goes, oh, okay. You want me to make a promise? Then let's make a covenant together. Verse 9. Then God said to him, bring me a heifer that's three years old, a female goat that's three years old, a ram that's three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And so Abraham brought him all these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. In a biblical covenant, something that would be done, these, these animals were killed and cut in half. This is meant to be gross. It is gross and it's for a reason. And then they were arranged on the ground in a certain way where the halves were kind of opened up and separated. And then they were placed like in a line. And then the picture of what would happen in a covenant is that the two parties that are committing to each other, we're going to complete this transaction. We're going to fulfill this obligation would together do a figure eight walking through the bloody carcasses. Guess what would happen to their feet as they walked through? They're stepping in this gross, bloody mess of dead animals. And as you're doing that, the visual picture is this. If either of us does not fulfill our obligation, let this be done to me. Let this be done to me. May I be trampled. May I be killed. I'm making a blood oath, a blood covenant. So Abraham just starts out with a harmless request. Hey, God, are you going to fulfill this promise? Sure, Abraham, let's make a covenant. And so here's Abraham, and he starts cutting up these animals and arranging everything, and it's such a nasty, bloody scene. Birds of prey are coming down. I mean, like, can you picture this? Has anybody ever walked up on a dead animal? Um, back in, in Spring Hill, uh, probably 15 years ago, my parents had some property, and on the back part of that property, there was like this creek that we could cross, and we would go sledding on the other side of the creek on this other person's property. They had this, this big, huge hill. And it was a cow pasture, and that made things interesting when you were sledding at times. You had to really avoid some landmines. But I remember one particular time, as we were kind of going across the creek and heading over there to just kind of scope things out, there were all these birds swirling and gathering. As we got closer, we came across a cow that was like dead and gross and smelly and decaying, like, ugh, it's a scene. Anybody ever witnessed something like that before? Yeah, or at least driven by it on the side of the road? Okay, y'all are looking at me like, I don't know what you're talking about, this is weird. Here's the point. As Abraham is doing all of this and these birds start swooping down, he's, 
he's face to face with the reality of, oh my gosh, I'm about to make a covenant with God Almighty. Guess which one of us is most likely to blow it and mess up that covenant? And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. I bet. He's coming face to face with Almighty God and the reality of what it means to step into a covenant with him. And he's terrified. I don't have what it takes. I mean, if you think the near kinsman was in trouble, like, I don't think I have enough money to pull this off. Abram is like in a much dire situation. God, I don't have what it takes. I can't fulfill this covenant. I can't do this deed. I'm, I don't have it. Help. And he freaks out. I actually think when it says he fell into a deep sleep, the bro passed out from fear. I think the scripture backs me up on that. He's terrified. And he passes out in fear and he's lying there. And then in the midst of all this, God begins to unpack what he's promising. And he says some incredible things. He declares the promises to Abraham specifically that he's going to fulfill. I am going to give you kids. I am going to give you a land. But then he begins to talk with him about the future. And he says things like this. Um, your people are going to be in slavery for 400 years. Like God wasn't surprised by what happened in Egypt. Your people are going to be in slavery for 400 years. It's going to, then eventually they're going to come out and you're going to take possession. They're going to take possession of the promised land. There's Joshua and marching on into the promised land and taking over. That's coming. And then God even says this about the people that are currently in the land. The Amorites have not reached, um, I, I'm butchering it, I don't have the quote right in front of me, but he basically says the Amorites have not reached their full level of wickedness. What he's saying is, I'm gonna give them hundreds of years to turn around and make it right. That's God's mercy. He was giving the Amorites hundreds of years to turn and repent. This isn't a message about Old Testament battles and what all was going on there, but there's more to the story than just God doesn't like certain people and decide to wipe them out. They had mercy for hundreds and hundreds of years to turn and repent, and they didn't. And God lays this all out to Abram. And so in the midst of this, as God is walking him through what I'm going to do for you and what's going to happen, and then he actually measures off the land from here to here to here to here. That's the land you're going to have. That's the land for Israel. Abraham freaks out, passes out. He's in this deep sleep. And guess who walks the covenant trail? Genesis 15, verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. God himself walked the covenant that Abraham couldn't walk. God said, I will fulfill this covenant even if it costs me my life. Are y'all getting the picture? Are you seeing this? Jesus is the true Boaz. And fulfilling our covenant and redeeming our lives costs him his life. God wasn't just fooling around here. He was, he was giving a prophecy already of what it was going to take to fully do for God's people all he planned to do. It was going to come 
through Jesus. And so here we have Boaz in the place of Jesus. We have Naomi in this story representing God's people, Israel, and the land that was promised them. And in Boaz, that land is being redeemed. You know, I don't know what your understanding of scriptures or your belief system is, but I believe that land belongs to Israel and that God meant what he said. It's theirs. It's theirs. Those are his chosen people and that's their land. God's made a specific promise for that. Boaz also does something else. He takes a Gentile bride that comes to him through Naomi, through Israel. Are y'all seeing this picture? We are the bride of Christ. Jesus loves us and he's redeemed us. I, I want to give you some imagery of this in the New Testament. We're going to just read a few verses here, just kind of one right after the other. First of all, Galatians chapter four, verses four through seven. This is talking about our Boaz, our Jesus. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, check this out, born of a woman, born under the law. Remember those two things, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Who's that? To redeem those under the law, who is that? The Jews. So that we might receive adoption as sons. Who's that? Most of us, maybe all of us, Gentiles. It goes on. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We have a name. We have a dad. We have an inheritance. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Jesus has perpetuated those who were dead. We were dead. We were going to be left without a name. We were going to be left without an inheritance. Our wages, what we have earned, what we have deserved is what? Death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Redeemer. Jesus has done this for us. Um, I just think it's interesting to note that it says that God sent forth his son, born of a woman and born under the law. Check this out. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus had Gentile roots. Rahab, the mother of Boaz. Ruth, the wife of Boaz. You know who was in that line? King David. So we're going to peek out a little bit more next week. King David's in that line. Throughout Jesus' line, there's actually several Gentile women. Several Gentile women in the line of Christ. Do you, do you, let me just read this to you. Let me show you this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21 and 22. If you've read C.S. Lewis, you might have an idea of where this is going. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We are sons and daughters of Adam. And in that line, we don't have the redeemer we need. It's a near redeemer. It's a closer redeemer. I'm more closely related to Adam than to Jesus. But that redeemer cannot meet my need. There is a reason 
that we boldly proclaim that there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved except for Jesus Christ because it's who he is. There's a lot of great people that have walked this earth. None of them holds a candle to Jesus Christ. He is the only perfect redeemer. He's Jew, he's Gentile, and oh, by the way, he's God. That means he can pay the bill. He can do what could not be done by any other redeemer. He covers it on every level. He's man, he's God. He can fulfill what no one else can fulfill for us. We can spend our lives looking to see them redeemed in any number of ways, and it is impossible apart from Jesus Christ. He's the sole redeemer. And the beauty of that, as sole redeemer, he's finished the work. See, our job is the last two Sundays. Hold on to his grace and rest in his work. Let's let him fulfill his promise. Let's let him do what he said he would do, the only one who could do it. And so because of that reality, here's what we have. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Does that hold a little more meaning after the sandal thing that we've learned this morning? According to the riches of his grace. I've always found it interesting. I just thought it was a weird, like King James word, trespasses. Like why doesn't it just say sins? Trespasses. Going places we don't belong. Or when we get sinned against, someone has trespassed against me, they have stomped on territory that does not belong to them. When I sin against someone else, I am stomping on territory that does not belong to me. That's God's property. And he loves that land. And he loves those people. And so he comes and in the ways that we have trespassed against one another, we have unlawfully stomped on each other, harmed each other, hurt each other. Jesus comes and he covers over that because he purchases us. And he says, you're mine now, so I can, I can release that trespass. I can let it go. I can give you a right now to be clean. And it's through my blood. I paid that covenant. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. I don't have to live in terror like Abram. Oh God, I don't have it. I don't measure up. I'm lost in my guilt and shame. I don't have to live there. Instead, I can step into and be transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He removes from us that sense of dread and obligation that we can't fulfill. He purchases for us that which we cannot get. We are both the near kinsmen who can't come through and we are Ruth who's lost and in need of saving. We're both. I fall short on both sides. I can't fulfill the law and I'm lost apart from Jesus. And Jesus comes in and says, I got you covered. I'll take on the covenant. I'll take on the responsibility. Your part, rest. I give grace. I fulfill my promises. So I said there was a verse we were going to read at the end to wrap things up. And my hope is that this verse will make more sense to us than maybe it's ever made before. It's just this simple little sentence. It's one verse. Jesus is talking 
And he does what he so eloquently does, where he tells these simple little brilliant stories that highlight the beauty and fullness of God and his love for us and the kingdom that he's inviting us into. And so in a really simple way, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. We're the treasure in the field. For God so loved the world, the field of the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You're his treasure. You're his prize. You're his Ruth. You're the real thing that he's after. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we stand in awe of you. God, we thank you for your unbelievable grace, your unbelievable mercy. Jesus, we thank you for the finished work of the cross. God, that we can now rest in you and hold on to your promise because you are faithful. You will redeem. God, you've redeemed our lives from an eternity of separation from you. And God, you are at work redeeming all kinds of aspects in our lives that are broken, that are damaged, that are hurt. God, we, we don't have what it takes. God, we're outsiders looking in. We are near kinsmen, all of us, that can't pay the price. But Jesus, you've paid the price. You've fulfilled the task. And so we look to you. God, we hold on to you as our king. We thank you that you look at us and see a treasure. And God, we treasure you. We love you. We worship you. Jesus, help us just in a fresh way, even this week, to walk around as redeemed sons and daughters who've been bought with a price. It's paid for. We're covered. God, help us to live and walk in that grace. May it bring refreshment. May it bring peace. May it bring joy because of the reality of who you are and what you've done for your bride whom you love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 I, I want to actually uh, close really quick with this. Um, if you're a note taker, you can write this down. If you've got your phone, you can type it out. Nobody's going to check up on you on this, but I got some homework for you. <laughs> got some homework for you. And I'm going to give you a little appetizer of it in just a second and then let you guys go. I want to encourage you through the lens of what we've talked about this morning, God's redemptive work in our life, Jesus, our true redeemer. I want to encourage you to read Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. They go together. One leads right into the other. Read Isaiah 52 and 53. And if we do have a role to play, other than just receiving what Jesus has done, it's this. I want to read this to you. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together in singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. 
For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Paul quotes that in Romans and tells us that's us now. We, we are the ones with beautiful feet where every piece of property we lay our feet, we have a right to be there now. And the thing that we do with our feet, wherever it takes us on this globe, is we're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. We're, we're just proclaiming good news. Hey, this ground has been purchased by him. He loves you. You're the bride. We carry that message of joy and peace. And God says, beautiful are the feet of those who do that. So let's receive for ourselves the grace of Jesus Christ and let's joyfully proclaim it to a world in need.